السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته Welcome back to another episode of our uh, Facebook live discussions um, inshallah an ongoing uh, initiative where we're having weekly talks discussing multiple topics inshallah that are relevant to the ummah relevant to our community that we can all benefit from um, and today we're talking about something very timely um, obviously with the passing of the new hijri uh, entering a new year once again for us as muslims and it comes as a great opportunity for us to reflect on um, you know the world around us to reflect on our history as muslims on some important events that have shaped our ummah and that played a massive role in the um, implementation of the life of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam who have with us today brother suddad ray assalamu alaikum suddad wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh suddad will be discussing with us today inshallah some of the key events that surrounded you know why this event or why this period uh, became to be known as you know the start of our islamic calendar and you know some of the significance of it and some lessons that we can take um to implement within our lives today and some lessons for almost inshallah i won't go on for too long um brother suddad for them Jazakallah khair, Brother Muhammad. A'udhu billahi min shaytan al-jim, bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahabihi ajma'een, all praises due to Allah, and may the peace and blessings be upon his beloved Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Alhamdulillah, the ummah has just entered into the first Islamic month of Muharram, making it the beginning of the year of 1443 after Hijr. Uh, that means it's 1,443 years since the Prophet ﷺ migrated from Mecca to Medina. It is a blessed month. It's a special month, a month where we've got the 10th day of Muharram, Ashura, the day where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved Musa from Pharaoh, uh, and a month coming after Dhul Hijjah where the pilgrims return from Hajj also. Um, it is also one of the four sacred months mentioned in the Quran, which is the third of the sequential months of Dhul Qadr, Dhul Hijjah, and Muharram and the fourth one being Rajab, which comes a little bit later. But what we want to ask today, inshallah ta'ala, is what is the real significance of this month? Um, you know, what is the significance of the new year to Muslims? What does it mean to us? Because if you look around the community, you will find different people mark this period in different ways. So you'll find uh, that this time is celebrated as a new year by some, right? Much in the same way that non-Muslims celebrate theirs, but without all the fanfare. Uh, and it's become a cultural celebration, right, with Muslims uh, eager to have their own festival or to congratulate one another on entering a new year or sending e-cards via WhatsApp and on the internet to each other, you know, uh, congratulating one another on, you know, the start of a new uh, Islamic year. Others choose to undertake gatherings of dhikr, specifically on the day of, you know, the, the first day of the year, um, in remembrance of Allah and his Prophet despite you know, you're not being singled out. So there's a lot of debate and discussion about that, but it's beyond the, the pale of this discussion. Others will address Muslim gatherings, right? Lectures, talks, khutbahs, and they'll talk about the hijrah of the Prophet and all the, what I like to call the nice details, the niceties, right? Not as a sequence of events initiated by Allah and his messenger, but rather portray it as an impulse decision. As if to say, Prophet ﷺ, he woke up in the morning and just decided to migrate and establish an Islamic state. Like as if it just came out of thin air and didn't require a lot of preparation, a lot of work before that. And as if it wasn't one of the aims. Right? Also, you know, at the beginning of, of the new Islamic year, many discuss the Hijrah and they attribute to it, right, and to the Prophet ﷺ, the situation of a seeking asylum, right, seeking asylum, portraying the Prophet and the Muslims as being weak, needy. Uh, or destitute individuals, just like that of asylum seekers today. And finally, 
right? The other way it gets discussed is that we've all been raised and we've been taught about the Hijrah just as children are taught bedtime stories. So when we read the Sirah about the Hijrah, there's no doubt, right, that it's a fascinating story. You know, the lead up, the participants, the, the secrecy, the plan, its execution and the chase, etc. It's very intriguing. Um, but I'm sure most people and children, right, they can recall the incidents, for example, of when Ali slept in the bed of the Prophet or when the Prophet and Abu Bakr, they hid in the cave and were very close to being caught, right? Or the singing of the merry songs as they came towards Medina, you know, when women and children came out. We all remember those details. But how many will uh, remind you, how many people would remind you that the Hijrah marked the point where Islam went from being a mere ID to being applied practically in life, right? Where in Mecca, solutions to life problems were discussed, but in Medina, solutions to life's problems were implemented upon the people. How many will understand that the migration to Medina marked the birth of a new Islamic state, and where Rasulullah was no longer just a prophet, but he was also a ruler, a leader, a judge, a commander of an army, and much more. How many will remind you that the Prophet migrated to Medina not in fear of persecution from Quraysh, but because he had received both the pledge of allegiance and the pledge of war, right? Bayatul Aqaba, right? From the powerful tribes of Aus and Khazraj from Medina. Indeed, the Hijrah is not just a story that we relate to our children before bedtime. Right? It marked the beginning of a new and glorious chapter in the history of Islam. So we must understand, inshallah, that this incident. We, we need to understand the incident correctly as one of the most important events during the life of the Prophet for his da'wah and as also as one of the most crucial events in the history of Islam because it marked the transition from kufr to Islam, from the individual to the collective, from non-implementation to implementation. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, فَحْكُمْ بَيْنَهُمْ بِمَا أَنزَلُ اللَّهِ وَلَا تَتَّبِعَ Right? So judge and rule between them by what Allah has revealed and do not follow their vain desires when they divert the truth which has come to you. They seek to divert you. Um, it also transitioned from Muslims being oppressed and being, right, to being protected and safeguarded. And this is especially true when you look at the hadith of the Prophet when he said, al-imam Jannah." He said the imam, the khalifa, the ruler of the Muslims is a shield for them. So they fight from behind him, and from behind him they are protected. Right? So all of that persecution and all of the difficulties and all the oppression now became a protection for them. Right? It also marked the transition from one-on-one da'wah to carrying Islam through a state da'wah and jihad. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, If the victory of Allah comes, the nusra, the help, right? the material victory, you'll find that people not enter in Islam one by one. You'll find them enter Islam in droves. right? You'll find them entering in on mass. So let's have a look at some of the key points around migration. right? So it's to learn from the best of mankind, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, of how to revive this ummah and to transform it as it was transformed during his blessed life. The first point we'll discuss, inshallah, is the choosing of the beginning of the Islamic calendar. Because we are in a month of Muharram. Sometimes there's a lot of confusion in the discussions. People think the migration took place in a month of Muharram, when in fact it didn't. Right? So the beginning of the Islamic calendar 
was adopted during the time of Umar as a ruler. So not during the time of the Prophet nor during the time of Abu Bakr. So when the land the lands began to expand so far, right, into the lands of the Romans, into the Persians and you know, um, Northern Africa, etc. Um, they needed a reference time when Umar began to issue written orders to his governors in all of these lands. So Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, he complained to Umar that his letters need to be dated. He said, look, we've got it. I know which month you sent it, but we're not really sure which year it was sent in, right? Because obviously they don't have the internet. They didn't have fast telephone, mobile reception where they were back then. Um, and, and so they needed a date. So some of the governors complained and said, Umar, we need, we need a date, right? We need a year. Uh, the second reason for initiating the Hijri date was when a complaint over a debt reached Umar for a resolution. And they knew the month that the debt repayments were, were, were supposed to be made, but they were confused over the year. So Umar decided to introduce the calendar. Now, at the time of Rasulullah, right, there were lots of problems with, with how they used to do it, right? Like the, the Arabs, right? They used to swap the months. Right? And this was stopped at the time of Rasulullah because it was a habit. They used to swap the months to, to, to what suited them. So the four um, prohibited months, the sacred months, if, if you know, it was prohibited to have um, to wage war during that time against an enemy or to harm others, etc. And so if I wanted to launch an offensive against a different tribe and it was in one of the four, these four months, they'd swap it. They'd say, you know what, this is going to be, um, uh, for example, um, Safar or Rabi al-Awwal instead of Muharram, we'll swap it around. They used to do that especially with Rajab, the month of Rajab, which was the fourth month. Um, so that used to stop, right? That was stopped at the time of the Prophet Sallallahu and it became fixed. So the order became fixed at the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Additionally, with the expansion of Islam, the Persians and the Romans had their own calendars in their own years. So that added to the confusion. And Muslims as well, they used to mark their years by the significant events. So you had Am al-Fil, right, the year of the elephant, which was the birth year of the Prophet Sallallahu or the, the year of Badr, right, so the big significant battles, etc. Or the year of Hazan and sorrow, when the Prophet Sallallahu had lost his, uh, his, both his wife Khadija anha, and his uncle Abu Talib. And so Alhamdulillah, Umar's rule was characterized by Shura, very much so. And he would routinely consult with his companions regarding their affairs. And mostly he used to lean upon Ali Radulan. So he consulted his companions um, about fixing a, a year, a date, a reference point for all of their affairs. And they considered multiple suggestions of anchoring the years as a reference point and included, right? Some of the suggestions they were included the birth of the Prophet. Why don't we go back to when the Prophet was born, which was the year of the field, right? Of the elephant. Or the first revelation, right? So the first time Prophet received wahi, or one of the significant battles like Badr, right? And so on. So they came up with a, a multitude of options. But after consulting the companions, they agreed upon the Hijri migration, and this should represent the start, right? The, Hijri, the year of the migration. And the reason why the Hijra was chosen over other significant Islamic events was because it was considered the most essential event that established the Islamic Ummah and separated between truth and evil, yeah, between Al-Haq and Batil, right? Now, here's the, the tricky part. The Prophet Sallallahu he arrived in Medina on the 12th day of Rabi' al-Awwal, which is the third Islamic month, not the first, 
right? The third Islamic month. But Omar decided to go back, right, to the start and make Muharram as month number one instead of Rabi' al-Awwal, which is month number three. And he did that for two reasons. The first reason was uh, the commitment and the oath of Al-Aqaba. So the, the contract and the oath of Al-Aqaba was given, right, in Dhul-Hijjah, which is the 12th month of the, of the year that we, we, we know today. And this was the spark that paved the way to the Prophet's migration to Medina. And we'll discuss that a little bit further later in, in the talk, inshallah. So the first reason was that the, the pledge of Aqaba was given in the month of Dhul-Hijjah. And so Omar said, this is so important because it was this oath and this pledge of Aws and Khazraj to accept Islam and protect the Prophet ﷺ, to establish his state and to accept the migrant Muslims that allowed them to migrate and to establish his state. Therefore, they said, let's start with the first new moon that followed that significant event. All right, so it happened in, um, in Dhul-Hijjah. The next new moon, they said, is going to be the first year. Right, or the first month of the year. And Ibn Hajar, Laskalani, the scholar of Islam, said that's the strongest opinion on why they chose Muharram to be the first month. The second reason which the scholars discuss as to why Omar chose Muharram as the first month is because it falls after the Hajj season. When people return from the Hajj, they return with a fresh start. Yeah, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was to accept their, their deeds uh, and their prayers and their Hajj, then they would have their sins wiped away. So it was considered the beginning of the newly found state was the wiping away of what came before it, right? of kufur and shirk and the establishment of Islam, and it started the ummah anew and refreshed. So for these two reasons, they chose Muharram. So let us ask then, what is the purpose of the migration? Why did the Prophet ﷺ and the companions migrate in the first instance? Now, we know Rasulullah he worked tirelessly for 13 years seeking to achieve victory in that city of Makkah. He loved Makkah. Right? He had immense affection for the Kaaba. Um, but despite him being the best dawah carrier to ever live, right, his message was ultimately rejected by the people. So he began to concentrate on other tribes outside of Makkah. Right? He spread that dawah. And so the seerah shows that he began approaching many tribes, asking each of them similar requests. So as Zuhri reports, that these tribes were not approached in one hit. Like he didn't just go approach them all at once. Rather, they were given the message from later in his dawah until the just before the migration, the year before migration. And the Sira documents that he approached many tribes, including uh, Ta'if. And we know what happened when he approached the city of Ta'if. Uh, Banu Amr bin Sa'sa, uh, Bani Ghassan, Murah, uh, Banu Hanifa, Banu Nas, you know, Banu Kinda. Uh, the tribes of Kalb, Al-Harith, Bin Ka'ab, and the people of Hadramaut, just to name a few. So in each of these instances, the Prophet ﷺ was not only inviting them to Islam, rather to believe in the message, to place him in authority over them, and to implement this religion and to fight to protect the Prophet ﷺ in a newly formed state. These were the requirements. And if you read into the seerah and those discussions that took place, you will find these were, that was the nature of the request and the discussion. And this is why you'll find Abu Bakr, he would accompany the Prophet he would ask them immediately, what are your war capabilities like? So when you've made a tribe, right, you want to know what are your war capabilities like? Why would you ask them? If you're just inviting them to Islam to become Muslim and pray and fast, why would you want to know what their war capabilities are like? And he used to ask them also, do you have brave fighters? 
And you'll find the responses, of course, some you know, of those responded and said, look, we win some, we lose some, but we're courageous. Others said, of course, you'll find us with the sharpest of swords. Others said, we've got packs with this group or these tribes and these nations, but not with others. These ones were happy. And so many of these discussions, despite the request being asked, and you see their responses, show very clearly what the Prophet ﷺ was asking. All right? His intent was to establish Islam as an authority in the form of a state. And this is why Quraysh used to fight him and then offer compromises, even from the sixth year. All right? They used to offer him, so they, in one instance, after seeing Hamza and Umar embrace Islam and, and the momentum gained traction in Mecca, they sent Utbah bin Rabi'ah to compromise, to seek to compromise with the Prophet ﷺ. And they offered him wealth, power, women, um, kingship, authority, as long as he leaves Islam aside. Right? They even, in another instance, they sent his uncle, Abu Talib. They said, look, we... we, we, we you know, we know you've got you're giving him protection, but this is getting too much for us. And Abu Talib felt the strain and the pressure, so he went to him, his his nephew, sallallahu alaihi and he said, "Look, I, I I can't carry this burden. It's very difficult. This is what they ask." And the famous response from the Prophet was, "Wallahi am la wada shamsa fi yamini wal qamra fi yasari la atruku hada al amr hatta yudhiru Allah ahlakaduna." Wallahi, my uncle, if I were to put the sun in my right hand and the moon in my left, you know, imagine having that much power that you could give me. I would not leave this message of Islam until Allah makes it victorious or I die trying. So all of these instances were rejected. All right. They offered, why would they offer him kingship, leadership, ruling, authority in the sixth year? Right? Some people, they will make an argument and say, during the time in Mecca, the Prophet did nothing but call to Tawheed. And the meaning of it is that personal worship, personal belief. Why would Quraysh offer him kingship? They knew exactly what he was asking, seeking. They knew what the kalima of La Allah Muhammad Rasulullah meant, right? Without distinction. You know, if you go back to the very first instance of revelation, when a Prophet ﷺ received Iqra' Bismi Rabbika his wife Khadija Radha, she took the Prophet to her cousin Waraka bin Nofel. From the very beginning, Waraka understood this message. Now, he was an old man, a blind man, but very well versed in the previous scriptures. But he understood who this being was, Jibreel alayhi salam. And he said, Well, Allah, this is the same being that Allah sent to Musa and to Isa, etc., right, with the revelations. And he said, If I'm alive, I will certainly support you and fight alongside you when your people drive you out. And the Prophet ﷺ, he responded, he said, my, you know, he was bewildered, like, my people will drive me out, why? I've just got this revelation. Well, he said, no man came before you with this message, except that people fought him and drove him out. And if I'm alive at that time, inshallah, I'll support you. So that was the conversation from the beginning of Wahi. So even Waraka bin Nawfal knew very clearly what this kalima of Allah meant. It meant there's no power, no authority, no might, no, no one who can dictate no one who sets the halal and haram the good and bad the right and the wrong except allah subhanahu wa ta'ala there's no distinguisher between the good and the bad the rich and the poor except the deen of islam and taqwa they understood this message so they sought to compromise with him but the prophet he knew the purpose of this divine message allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in surah saf it is he allah who sent the messenger with guidance and this deen of truth, for what purpose? 
to dominate and prevail over all other ways of life, even if the idolaters reject it or hate it. In another verse in Surah Al-Hadid, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, it is he, Allah, who sent many signs down to take you from the darkness of oppression to the light of Islam. So it's not an issue that you can compromise with. All right? And it wasn't until the two tribes of Aus and Khazraj accepted this call that plans begin, began to form this new state. So the first pledge of Aqaba was upon Islam. They gave him so uh, a group and representation from them gave him the first pledge. The first, first pledge was a bay'atul Islam. So it was a bay'at upon the belief of Islam. The second pledge came the following year and it was called bay'atul harb. Right? So the first one was not, it was uh, upon Islam, and I think they even refer bay'at and Nisa, right? The pledge of women just upon Islam. The second one was bay'atul harb, right? Which was a pledge of war and fighting to protect the Prophet. And it was this pledge. Right? That allowed the migration to happen because the Prophet would be protected. So Quraysh at the time was very politically aware of this. You know, Ibn Ishaq, the scholar, he states that when Quraysh saw Muhammad had assembled a party and he had support from elsewhere other than from inside Quraysh and Mecca, from a town other than their town, and witnessed Muhammad's companions moving out to join these forces as they slowly migrated and, and were allowed to sneak out and leave, they realized that the Muslims had found a new home with them right, in Medina and they had acquired their protection. So the protection wasn't just they embrace Islam, come join us in a, you know, a merry Islamic uh, environment. So Quraysh, Ibn Ishaq, he continues, he says, Quraysh were concerned that Muhammad will also leave them. And since they knew that he had decided to do battle with them, they needed to put a stop with it, to it. So this is not the motive of an asylum seeker. Right? This is not the intent of one who fears the enemy. And we know the Prophet Sallallahu he, he allowed early on in, in, in the da'wah in Mecca for certain companions doing it tough under difficult situations who sought permission from him to migrate to Abyssinia, Al-Habasha, and to seek refuge from the, and he allowed some of them. Now Rasulullah if he was, if he saw himself as an asylum seeker, as one running away from transgression and difficulty and harm and oppression, all the Muslims, including himself, would have migrated. But that's not what his message was. Nor was it his feeling. Yes, they were harmed. Yes, people were martyred. So Maya, you know, Min Al Yasir from the family of Yasir was the first shahida in Islam, the first martyr in a path of Islam. Right? Uh, Ammar was tortured, Bilal was tortured, others lost their lives in this path. So upon this, before the migration, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in Surah Al Isra, He said, Kul, He said, Say, yeah, Muhammad, O oh my Lord, let my entry be by the gate of truth and honor, and likewise my exit be from the gate of truth and honor, and grant me from your presence an authority to aid me. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he, so he mentioned this in the Quran, and this was a dua and an instruction to the Prophet Because Ibn Kathir, he states in the tafsir, he said that this event marks the beginning of the Islamic era, as was agreed upon by the Sahaba. Right, so this was the instruction, and in the tafsir you'll find some of the companions, they said the, the entry is talking about, the entry of the gate of truth and honor talks about Medina. And likewise, my exit by the gate of truth and honor referred, okay, exit in Mecca. And grant me from your presence an authority 
to aid me. Yeah, it says, "Ladunka Sultan Nasira." So, uh, from you, a sultan, an authority, um, and a victory. So the companions, when when this verse was revealed, the companions slowly migrated to Medina, and only a few remained behind, including Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr. But how did the enemies of Islam react to this? They previously persecuted the Prophet and the companions. They tortured them, they exiled them, they treated them with hostility and ridicule. They refused to allow them access to the people's ease. But now, Rasulullah ﷺ acquired the Nusra and the support from another tribe. So the victory to the believers was very close. And it was upon this that they gathered in Dar Nadwa. Now we know the story of what they intended here. This is where all the decisions in Mecca were made. And they gathered and they decided to finally kill Rasulullah Upon their plots and their plans, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, They plotted and they planned, and Allah too plans, and Allah is the best of planners. Because the Prophet's call represented a grave danger to them, to their very existence of Quraysh, such that their survival was in question, right, and the survival of a regional power in today's terms, right? One man, that one man and his companions warranted elimination altogether. It provides evidence that there was danger to Quraysh of the grave, gravest proportions. So what was this danger? Right? What was the threat that Muhammad posed that could not be contained, that they had to resort to killing him? Because they knew about the message for 13 years. Right? Why were they threatened now? And Ibn Ishaq, he stated that the decision to kill the Prophet was issued only one day before his migration. So it's not a plan they had for 13 years. They could have killed him long before. But now desperate times call for desperate desperate measures. And so his message was explicit and not secret. They knew about it. They knew his intentions for power and leadership. It wasn't concealed. So there were two reasons for this. The first one is that the people of power and the strong factions accepted this call completely from Medina. Aus and Khazraj were, con- were considered the people of power and Nusra, right? And when they accepted it completely and supported the Prophet, then they would take the rule and authority away from all the other tribes that hadn't accepted at that point, and it just needed them to. And it was almost a military coup at that time. And there were complaints by some that fled and went, complained to Quraysh later on that Muhammad has received. Uh, you know, the pledge and, uh, and Nusra and support from these two tribes. And basically they've snatched it away from all the other tribes there. The second reason was in the implications of the migration of the Messenger to a society that had been prepared and displayed a read- readiness to accept the full implementation of the Islam. So we know that Mus'ab bin Umair was sent right, for a year to train and to expand the da'wah and to do, prepare the society. And when Rasulullah Sallallahu he said, he asked him, what is the condition? What is the situation? What is the public opinion there? Right, Musab replied, he said, Islam has entered every home. Meaning public opinion was for Islam, right? Someone had embraced Islam in their families, the discussions were taking place for Islam, etc. And today, this is what we see from the enemies of Allah Subh'anaHu We look to Syria, we look to Iraq, Afghanistan, right? The reason why... They are spending trillions of dollars, loss of lives, right? Their economies are shaky as it is, yet they're still investing so much is to stop the resumption of Islam from returning. They spent two centuries, the West spent two centuries, right, 
bringing down the Othmani Khilafah, the state which was destroyed in 1924, a hundred Hijri years ago. And so they work day and night today to stop it because their agents in the Muslim world are no longer doing their job. They don't, they can't silence the Muslims. The uprisings, the Arab Springs, the people uh, are coming back to their Islam in their droves, alhamdulillah, and they're ready to sacrifice in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So victory is near. When you see the enemies, take the last step, that's it. We just got to wipe them out. As we're seeing of the Muslim woman, it's not because we're away from our deen. On the contrary, it's because we are close to victory. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, we know that. You know, with all hardship, after the difficulty and the trials and the tests and the tribulations, comes ease. Allah makes it easy. You know, the other verse about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he mentions, do you think you'll enter Jannah without being tested like those before you? They were tested. They were afflicted with, with, with you know, a famine and difficulty and hardship. So and shaken so much so that even the prophets and the companions with them cried out, Mata Nasrullah. When is the hope and the victory of Allah coming? Allah inna Nasrullahi Qareeb. Verily, the victory of Allah is near. As Allah mentions in the Quran. So the Hijra teaches us the correct understanding of many things, including the tawakkul and trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yani, we saw Ali in the bed. You know, the Prophet he told him, no one will harm you. So Ali trusted that completely and no one came to harm him at that time. Instead, they were fooled. We saw the Prophet he sprinkled the dirt on their heads of those that were waiting out with their swords ready to stab the Prophet as soon as he exited his house. And by the miracle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they were blinded and their eyes were sealed and he was able to sneak past them. We saw, you know, the, the, the shepherd was asked to run his flock over the footprints of the Prophet and Abu Bakr as they left and they fled. So they undertook the means and the actions required to them and then placed their trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, on the journey, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq he would stand and run in front of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, then he'd run behind him, then to his left and to his right. And the Prophet asked him, Abu Bakr, what are you doing? And he said, I, I get a vision that the enemy is coming from in front, so I rush to protect you from the front. And then I get a, a vision that they're coming from behind, I run from behind, east and west, etc. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was pleased with Abu Bakr, meaning they, yes, they didn't put Complete trust in Allah at the expense of doing what they were required. No, they complete trust in Allah while they undertook the means to establish what they needed to do to protect themselves, save their life and migrate on this journey from Mecca to Medina safely. You know, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, when he, 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 even when he was with the Prophet and they reached the cave, he checked every nook and cranny before he allowed the Prophet to enter. He even stopped him before Going in the second time, he goes, I think I forgot one hole. I need to go check it. The spiders, scorpions, snakes, anything that could hurt or harm Rasulullah. And when they were in the cave and the enemies of Islam walked past, that we all know that story, Abu Bakr was visibly agitated. He was, he was, he was anxious. He, he was scared and frightened because the enemy's legs were passing by. And, Abu, and the Prophet saw this and Abu Bakr said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm, I'm anxious because... If they just look down at the level of their legs, they'll be able to see us. We're finished. And so the Prophet ﷺ calmed his Siddiq, his companion. And he said, What do you think, Abu Bakr? What do you say about two whom Allah is their third? Like who can harm two companions where Allah is their third? So after that, 
his heart became at rest. And so they migrated, they continued their migration. So for many days, they headed towards Medina. And the people of Medina would go out, they would wait for the news of Rasulullah and Abu Bakr and their, their arrival. They were just waiting every day. Is it today? No. Is it today? No, they haven't come. And unfortunately, we're told this was only met with song and dance and the singing of women and children of Tala al-Badru, Alayna, etc. However, what we're not taught is that the men went out also, but they were armed with their weapons ready to fight anyone that would chase the Prophet So they were prepared for war. So it's not just song and dance. When he came in his camel and, we, and it set down its position, etc. Right? They were all ready for it. So sometimes we're told the stories of the bravery and the courage of some of the companions at the time of the Hijrah as if to boost our egos, but we're never asked to act in that way. And on the contrary, when we do act bravely in that, we're told to sit down, to stop doing it. This isn't hikmah. Right? And some of those who repeat these stories, they themselves have a defeated mentality, even if their audience is full of energy and ready to sacrifice for Islam. You know, we're time, you know at the time of Umar, when he migrated, Ali, he said, Everyone migrated from Mecca to Medina in secret except for Umar. When he decided to migrate, he put on his sword, he slung his bow over his shoulder, he grasped a handful of his arrows, and he went to the Kaaba where the chiefs of Quraysh were sitting. And he went around and did tawaf seven times. He prayed two rak'at behind Maqam Ibrahim, the station of Ibrahim, and then he went to each one of them one by one in their circles. And he said, may the faces be disgraced. If anyone desires that his mother be bereaved of him and his child be orphaned and his wife widowed, and if there's any such one of you like this that wants this, then let him meet me behind this valley. I'm leaving. And no one met with Umar Like the courage and the strength just stuck it in their faces. So this is the courage we want from our youth in the face of tyranny and kufur and oppression. This is what the Prophet Sallallahu he said, the best of jihad is to speak a word of truth in front of a tyrant ruler. So let us very quickly revisit the main big points that we get from this understanding of Muharram, the Hijrah migration, and the birth of these newly formed states that resulted from these events. The first one I want to highlight and summarize with is that this Hijrah was a culmination of 13 years of struggle in Mecca. And the Prophet ﷺ, he coached his companions, he challenged Quraysh. He had visited over 20 or 30 tribes seeking this Nusra, this pledge of allegiance from the people of power. It wasn't something that he just snapped, woke up one day and said, let's migrate. The second point we take away from this is that the Hijra was performed only after the tribes of Aws and Khazraj gave their pledges to Prophet ﷺ to protect his mission, to implement Islam and to provide safety and security for the Muslims. Not before that. The third point we keep in mind is that Medina was the nucleus of the Islamic State. In a very short time, the state expanded to encompass most of you know, that known area. Like even at the time of Umar al it was known to have taken and, and, and conquered a third of the world at that time. Like it expanded so much. It knocked on the doors of you know, the superpowers at that time and conquered some of their lands at that time, subhanAllah. The fourth point is the comprehensive application of Islam cannot be done in the absence of Islamic State, right? It needs a single leader over all the Muslims. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he mentions in Surah Al-Ma'idah, you know, and, and, and rule between them by what Allah has revealed and do not follow their vain desires when the truth has come to you. 
So we're obliged to live by Islam. In another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, In al-hukma, in al-hukma The ruling is to none but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To none. No one has the right to rule, to govern, to legislate except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we're obliged to live by Islam. But its application depends on the presence of a single ruler of all the Muslims. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned Surah Nisa. Ya ayuladhina amanu, ati'u Allah, wa ati'u Rasul, wa ulil amri minkum. Obey Allah and obey the Messenger and those in authority from among you that you nominate, that you select to implement the deen of Islam over you. Point number five that we make is that this glorious Islamic state Right, was with the Muslims for 1300 years. Okay, yes, the ups and downs, it's a human state. After the death of Rasulullah, yes, you will find errors, you'll find mistakes, but it's a human being mistake. Islam has a methodology to correct those mistakes, to hold those people accountable. So on the 3rd of March, 1924, 100 years ago in the Hijri calendar, the Muslims were dealt a fatal blow when their state, the Uthmani Khilafah, was officially destroyed and replaced by Kufur. It was suspended. The laws were suspended. The lands divided. It's people impoverished. Point number six is that the Muslims have been suffering enormously since this day. And Rasulullah said, as we mentioned before, verily the Khalifa of the Muslims is a shield behind from which the Muslims fight and behind from which they protect themselves. You remove that shield and there's nothing. SubhanAllah, everyone is fair game. Look to the Muslim Ummah today and this is what we see. So the reality of the Hijrah is as we've discussed today. It's not just a story. It's one of the most important events in the history of Islam. And we have a duty to inquire further about the significance. And when we do, we have an even greater duty to act upon the lessons that we learn. It's not acceptable for you know even your enemies realizing the significance of Islamic State for us to neglect this importance. So they spend their time, more effort, more funds fighting you, right, to, to, to ensure that the Muslims... Uh, are persecuted and harmed and oppressed and Islam doesn't return. So it is upon you now to understand their, their, their plots and their plans, as it was mentioned before, so that we can understand what did the Prophet ﷺ do, what steps did he take to re-establish or to establish Islam so we can re-establish it. As the Prophet ﷺ said um, in, in one hadith um, on the method of prophethood, it will return and it's a promise of Allah. So just as the meetings and the strategies and the plans took place in Dara Nadwa then, these meetings, strategies, and plans occur today, right, to, in, in, and converge in, in panic and urgency to, to, to stop the Muslims from reviving. Their only purpose is to stop the changing of affairs of the Muslim Ummah and the success of the Sinsi Dawah carriers that are among them to the successful and, and, and powerful progression that we need. So I ask my brothers and my sisters, do not be fooled into thinking otherwise. Right, that we can't do anything? No, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give the victory. And they, enemies, your enemies of Islam, desire your blindness by sprinkling of that sand of ignorance over your eyes so that you can't see. But alhamdulillah, Ummah is awake and we see it. And we end it there. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika shudan la ila al-ant. Astaghfiruka wa atubu lay. There's a lot of uh, detail with the history that uh, often, like you said, we're not aware of a lot of the details and the key facts which really shape um, these massive events. Um, I wanted to just bring your thoughts back to just a point that you made earlier. You spoke about the difference in the affairs of the Muslims. You know, you mentioned the example of Bilal radiallahu anha, Sumayyah radiallahu anha, who were of those who were oppressed in Mecca before the Hijrah. And you mentioned about how the state of the Muslims really changed after the Hijrah. And I just wanted to ask, 
Um, if we could elaborate on that a little bit, obviously we see the Muslim Ummah today in a state where you know a lot of analogies can be drawn between the oppression that were faced by the likes of Bilal and Fumayyah and many Muslims around the world today. You said that you know the Hijrah caused big changes in their affairs. How exactly did it do that and what analogies can sort of be drawn today? Yeah, um, Look, there, there are many analogies we can draw, but the situation of the Ummah today um, whether, you know, a lot, a lot of Muslims will, will call out a lot of problems. So we'll say, you know, we're lacking education, our lands are corrupted, you know, we see what's happening in terms of the, 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 the poverty, uh, the, the, the lack of access to basic necessities in the Muslim world, the occupation of Muslim lands, the segregation of Muslim lands, the nationalism and the borders between us, et cetera, et cetera. So they'll list all of that, right? Bombs being dropped on us. The reason why this happened and can be allowed to continue to happen is that the Ummah is not united behind one Amir with an army, with a state. As individuals, there's only so much you can do. Yes, Islam asks us to, to help the poor, help the needy, um, to, to resist an occupation if we can, right? And by whatever means we're able to do so. But they are not solutions. Individuals cannot stand up against states. States have resources, power, money, um, uh, governance, you know, authority, um, strength, numbers, all of these in order to persecute and, and to roll out their, um, you know, their oppressive foreign policies upon, upon Muslim lands and their populations. The reason why we can't respond on that level is because we don't have a state. We don't have, with its army, with its people, with its resources, because obviously, you know, America, we just saw its so-called withdrawal right, from Afghanistan at the moment because of the trillions of dollars it was costing, the lives it was costing, the effort, right? You can't sustain that long term, right? Its economy is about to fall over as a result of that because sustained military efforts cost a lot of money. Um, and as individuals or as movements or as groups or as militias, you cannot sustain a long-term response, right? So even though America has pulled out from the immediate land of Afghanistan, it still surrounds it and uses proxies now to, to, to maintain a stronghold. But if you were to have a Khalifa who has, owns his own decision, owns his own authority and says, listen, no one will work with America, no one will work with United Nations, we understand what they will cut off all their ties, remove all their embassies from the Muslim lands, um, you don't allow your neighbouring countries, the Muslims won't allow the neighbouring countries and their regimes to support and provide air base and logistics and everything else, and you start to get control and a, and a vision. So the naval, you know, the naval space, the air bases, the, the um, you know, the, the ports, the logistics, all of that is no longer accessible to the enemies of Islam that want to continue to impoverish. The meddling in the affairs is all cut off. And that can only happen when you have an authority in a state to do that. And that same state is the, is the one that now looks after the poor and the needy and the orphans Right? Because Islam has a solution. But the educational system now is implemented according to Islam, where people have access to education and they have access to you know, medicine and, and hospital and, and treatment, all of which we don't have today. That looks after their affairs. Today in Lebanon, you know all know the situation. There is no access to, to, to clean water. Electricity is probably one hour a day that people have. There's no petrol, generator fuel, uh, diesel, that people can even run ge generators. Right? The, the, the people on the streets, uh, they're begging, they, they can't go to jo their jobs, they, they've got the COVID issue on top, all because of the mismanagement right? and the corruption within the government. And this is not exclusive to the world, these are all the majority of the Muslim countries that we're talking about.
talking about here. And so having an Islamic governance in the interest of the people, working for the people, implementing the din of Allah, right, is the best way to, 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 to not only the best way, the obligation to implement the din of Islam. You know, we all talk about Islam is a beautiful way of life, right? It, 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 it is from the maker of human beings telling us how we should live our lives, right? So in our fasting, in our prayers, in our sujood, it's the best feeling that we have. But it goes far beyond our personal worships and experience and connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It goes to the societal level. And this is what we saw the transition, that the Prophet with an army, with people, with, with support, was able to implement, look after the poor, the needy, the trade, the ones that didn't have access to trade. He partnered people up, right? They repelled the aggressors. They punished the ones who committed the crimes. They stopped the, the haram and the munkar and those that were cheating the people. So all of that comes together. And alhamdulillah, the Muslims are on track for that, inshallah ta'ala. Um, I think we're getting close to the hour, Mike, inshallah. So we might just start wrapping up. Is there any, um, I guess, if uh, to wrap up, just one final question, you know, going away from this um there is, like you said, a lot to implement and there are big implications for this in our modern society that, you know, do affect the affairs of the Muslims. The Hijrah is not just, you know, a bedtime story to tell and hear the story of, you know, Abu Bakr or Allah during the Hijrah. There are lessons for us to implement. Um, going away from this as an individual, what are, I guess, some key steps that we should be implementing within our lives to attempt to revive this Sunnah of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? When we're talking about the sunnah. So the sunnah is what? It's not the migration that we're talking about here. It's it's the obligation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had directed his Prophet to implement the deen of Islam. And this is not an individual effort. All right. So even Rasulullah didn't work individually. It was a collective effort. And Allah mentions this in Al-Quran. Let there arise from among you a group, from among the Muslims, a leadership there. Calling to Al-Khair. And the tafsir of the Al-Khair is calling to Islam, all things Islam, and joining the good, forbidding the evil, and they will be the successful ones. So the commandment is a group, and it can lend itself to be multiple groups, but the condition is they call to all of Islam and joining in everything, not bits and pieces, everything which is good, forbidding everything which is evil. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he worked as a collective of the companions. He would send the companions with letters, with invitations, set up this meeting, do that. At a time when they didn't, in Mecca, they didn't have to come together for Jama'ah Salah. Right? It was revealed later on. So it was a collective effort. And today, public opinion and awareness and the establishment of Islam is not an individual effort. It's a collective. So you need to put your hands with those that are working for this cause, understanding it's an obligation. It, it is the most dire need of, of today. Uh, we see it in every country. right? We haven't solved a single issue affecting the Muslim ummah in the last century. No issue around poverty where we've given donations, which we had to give. No issue around reversal of occupation, which we had to do. But we haven't resolved any one of them, right? The corruption we haven't resolved in the countries. And you won't do that, no matter how much you give, and even as groups or individuals. So you need to work collectively, right, upon a particular manhaj adopted from the seat of the Prophet with those that are calling for it, in order to work to establish it, inshallah ta'ala. One of those groups is Hazb al-Tahrir. And we have a, 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 you know, a step-by-step extraction from the life of the Prophet and ishtihad, right, built on its evidences, robust, well thought out, 
right, prepared for the Ummah to have that dialogue and discussion with the Ummah. Once you agree that this was the purpose of his migration, then you say, okay, how did the Prophet ﷺ achieve this? And many times, not just the Hishra is taught as a bedtime story, but the entire Sira in Mecca is. Right? It's just a nice stories, individual, uh, you know, it, it changed families and changed beautiful hearts and people embrace Islam and we cry over their embracing of Islam. But that's not what it was limited to. It was effort, struggle, right? It was vision, um, not to be distracted by all, all of these matters, right? Okay, you didn't have a masjid in Mecca and a prophet never, um, you know, put emphasis on that. Now, we're not saying don't build masjid. Of course, we need them, especially here in the West, Right. But the Prophet ﷺ was not distracted from that goal that he was working towards, which was to secure the Nusra. But to achieve that, it's not you and I on an individual basis that we seek. The rulers of the Muslim armies, or sorry, the, the generals and leaders of Muslim armies who proclaim their Islam, right? And we want them to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? To break their allegiance from the enemies of Islam and to turn it to the Muslim Ummah. So we need the Ummah working and pushing them. Right? Our uncles and our cousins and our brothers and our, you know, our, our grandfathers right? you know, in these armies to support Islam and Islam alone. So it's important, inshallah, that we put our hands with those people, reach out to them and say, Listen, okay, I'm ready to roll up, roll up my sleeves. What's involved? Let's discuss. Right? Convince me. Ask that question. And inshallah, you'll get a, a positive answer. Barak Allah, um, I think for everyone who yeah. uh, tuned in for this episode, uh, I'd like like we said, there's a lot to unpack here, and there's a lot of detail. Inshallah, and a stark reminder of the lessons that you know we can derive from the life of Rasulullah the importance of learning the seerah in detail. Like you said, not just as a as a bedtime story or something simply for you know the entertaining part, but really looking at the reality and how we can implement it within our life. So, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala make us among those who. Work towards implementing the example of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. May he, may he you know, unite our ummah upon his example and uh, alleviate the ummah from its suffering. Barakallahu feek. Jazakallah khairan for your time. For anyone who is watching, yeah. make sure you keep in touch with the page. Um, you know, we are doing this every single week, and you know there are there is a lot of benefit and a lot of um, you know very relevant topics being discussed. So keep in tune, inshallah. Jazakallah khairan, and we'll end it inshallah subhanahu. حمدك نشهد أن لا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته